0: Hi there, I'm Jay Humphrey, and you're listening to High Performance. Don't forget we're coming on tour in 2023. If you want to see our brand new live theatre show, just go to thehighperformancepodcast.com. Now, this podcast reminds you that it's within. Your ambition, your purpose, your story are all there. We just help unlock it by turning the lived experiences of the planet's highest performers into your life lessons. So right now, allow myself and Professor Damien Hughes to speak to one of the greatest sports stars on the planet so that he can be your teacher. Today, this awaits you.
1: I'd never crashed at that speed before. I was doing 330 kilometers an hour, uh, DRS open, got on a wet patch, and the car just spun. I'm going sideways down the track, carbon fiber flying everywhere, I can't see to my right because you're kind of locked in the cockpit. I don't know what I'm going to hit and I'm sort of bracing for impact. You have to find your own successes. You know, I would celebrate when I was only half a second away from 18th from the grid rather than being a second away because that was relative success. And for me, that was kind of like a pole position. There is no one path to success. I think you need to find your own path, your own journey. You need to have that self-belief that even if somebody is is going down a certain path, you need to follow your own course and you need to do what is best for you.
0: I can't tell you what a cool episode this is, man. This is the truth behind Mercedes Formula One driver. George Russell, I think that we all have an opinion right of people who compete at the very top level, and I think all too often in the modern world we have an opinion that it 's easy because look at what is in front of us all the time perfection, whether it 's seeing George Russell beat Lewis Hamilton as he did this season in the same car, which is an amazing achievement, or maybe it 's going onto to Instagram and seeing people do crazy things that just make them look remarkable, or whether it 's going on Facebook and seeing that your friends have shared the latest success in their lives. We're constantly faced with perfection. We're faced with people doing amazing things. We're faced with success everywhere we turn in the modern world. People can't wait to tell us about it. So sometimes we have to stop and realise that the journey to get there has been anything but successful. And you're going to hear from George here about taking huge leaps of faith. You're going to hear from George about really dark times when he thought that maybe his dream of being a Formula 1 driver wasn't going to happen. You're going to hear why he's learned to say no which gives him more chance to say yes. You'll hear his opinion on friends, on teammates. You'll hear him talk about those huge moments in Formula One from almost winning his first race a couple of seasons ago to that moment that he clashed on track with Valtteri Bottas, whose seat he was trying to take in the Mercedes team. It's the most remarkable chat. One thing to tell you, We recorded this about a month ago at a gorgeous hotel just outside London, Um, but it was before George won his first race in Formula One. So um, on behalf of everyone on the High Performance Podcast, George, huge congratulations on being a Formula One race winner. But let's now get the story behind the guy. This is the truth about how George Russell has ended up as a Formula One race winner on the High Performance Podcast.
2: So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com people today.
3: This Mother's Day, celebrate the extraordinary women in your life with a heartfelt gift from Blue Nile. Whether it's for your mom, a mother figure, or yourself as a mom, find that perfect piece to express your love and appreciation. Explore Blue Nile's exquisite pearls and mesmerizing gemstones that she's sure to love. Enjoy fast shipping options like guaranteed free shipping and returns. Make this Mother's Day unforgettable with a piece from Blue Nile. Right now, get up to 50% off at BlueNile.com. That's BlueNile.com.
0: Well, George, thank you very much for joining us. Thank you. Let's start as we always do. What is your version of high performance?
1: High performance is working hard. I think it's, it's as simple as that. The life we live is all about high performance between you know the athlete, the driver in the car, the machine, the car itself, the engine, the tyres, and absolutely everything. And everyone within that organisation has got to be performing at the top level. So um, I guess that's it.
0: So let's talk then about where this understanding of hard work came from. So like, let's just go backwards a few years. Before Formula 1, your brother raced he in didn't. go-karts? And is that, is that sort of where the passion came from? But then the question is, where did the, the understanding of the hard work and the determination and, and all of that come from?
1: Yeah, I think having my brother, who's 11 years older than me, going through his journey, he started Carter when he was 11 or 12 years old, which in our world is probably five years too late. So he was a bit behind the curve. He was an incredibly talented a go-kart driver, he won British championships, he won world championships, but unfortunately for him they were probably five years too late and he missed that opportunity to go into single-seaters and get an opportunity into, into Formula One. But seeing what he and my father went through, also probably seeing where, you know, he wouldn't mind me saying this, where they sort of fell short on the mistakes he probably made on his journey, I was so fortunate that my family, my parents, and even my brother, sort of mentored me and helped me through my journey. Helped me to avoid some of these mistakes and um, recognise you know, how hard you need to work, the sacrifices you need to put in.
0: And what were those mistakes?
1: <laughs> I don't. I don't want to talk talk anything bad about my yeah. my brother here, but I don't think he'll <clears throat> mind me saying that. You know, when he went to university, and you know, when you're surrounded by some people who maybe aren't the best
0: influence,
1: drinking party and probably doing things that a top athlete
0: shouldn't be yeah but but doing doing things that a university student does yeah that's the point it's like there's no criticism there no absolutely
1: absolutely and I think this is where I probably recognized when he was 21 22 23 and I was sort of on my journey started being competitive as a 9 10 11 year old seeing that it's not an easy world we live and if you do want to reach the top you've got to give everything. And unfortunately you just can't um, go down every single path. You know, you can't go out at the weekends partying and drinking and having fun as a normal sort of teenager. If you want to be able to perform on the racetrack at the following weekend. Wow. So those
4: sacrifices that you saw were being made, were you learning them at quite an easy age when it was easy to, to make those sacrifices?
1: Yeah, I think so. I mean, I left school when I was 14 And as I was sort of growing up, 15, 16 or 17, I I, I had a few mixed feelings about that. You know, I was pursuing my dream and I felt so fortunate and grateful that I was getting that opportunity to race. I felt like I was missing a bit of a social life and I saw the friends who I had at school then, you know, having what you would define as sort of fun and enjoying themselves. But I look back now and I feel like that if I continued in my my path with the sort of friends and the group of people who I had around me, that perhaps wouldn't have been the best influence for me to achieve what I wanted to achieve. And I think one thing I've I i I've learned from all of that is the people you surround yourself are yeah. so, so, so important.
4: Go on, tell us about that then. So what have you learned about the characters that you allow into your inner circle?
1: You need to recognize if somebody's bringing positivity or not. And I think Having achieved a bit of success, you know. Reaching Formula One, you do see people who sort of come out the woodworks and you know try and get a piece of that success, or you know even if it's something, can you get some tickets here or there? Or thinking it's so simple, and you sort of think to yourself, well, I've not heard from you in five, six, seven years, and you know you weren't there when I went through the struggle. You're sort of there now that I'm succeeding, and and I'm always trying to be polite with everybody, so I'd, I'd always try and help in a situation like that, but suddenly when it goes a little bit too far and these people are sort of sucking energy away from you, you almost think you don't need people like that in my life. And now I have such a, a close uh, amount of people around me. I don't have loads of friends. I've probably got a handful of friends who I speak to on a, on a weekly basis. I've got my girlfriend, I've got my family, and that's kind of all I need really.
4: It reminds me of, we interviewed um, Vicky Patterson she was a, a a lady that sort of made a career in reality TV.
1: And I may she, have watched that. Right, okay, yes. <laughs> I may have watched some of that when I was a bit younger.
4: But she spoke to us really powerfully about what you've just described, and she she came up with what she calls the phone test. So how, how she responds when somebody's name cre- uh, crops up in her phone determines where they are. So some people, she said, light up your life. They were igniters. Some people were draggers. Yeah because all they are a phoning for is to want the tickets. Yeah, and then she described that the vast majority of people are middle of the roaders mm. where they don't offer any value, but they don't detract from it either. And that was the way that she determined it. So what is the biggest lesson that you've learned then to be able to keep people
1: at bay that are bringing negativity or just wanting things? I think you've always got to be polite to, to everybody and I never want to be arrogant. Or I never like to ignore people or, or be rude, but I think, as I said, sometimes you've got to look out for yourself and recognise you, you can't please everybody. You've got to please the people around you. You've got to try and please yourself. But when you try, and I, I used to, I, I used to struggle at saying no to things. You know, somebody would ask me to do something. Yeah, no problem. You know, can, can we? Can I see you for a cup of coffee? Yeah, no problem. Can we do this? And when I look at my my diary in. A month's time, it kind of looks quite empty. But, you know, one week later, two weeks later, suddenly that diary's filling up pretty damn quickly. And I get to the time I think, Christ, I'm going for you know, a quick cup of coffee with this person or I'm doing this event, which isn't really adding any value to me. If anything, it's taken away from my performance. I, this is an opportunity. I could have been in the gym. It's an opportunity. I could have been on the phone with my engineers preparing for an event. And I come away from something like that just feeling a bit more downbeat, a bit more tired thinking to myself, you know, this is not bringing anything to
0: my life. Let's wind the clock back and talk about how you ended up in this elite environment. Your brother is go-karting, you're going along, you start racing, you see his mistakes, you then develop this kind of single-minded focus. Can we just go through, you've sort of brushed it off as not a big deal, but walking away from school at 14 is a big deal, because that's kind of like a contract there with everyone in your life where you go, I'm not just going to, be a normal kid I'm going to give up education at 14 years of age I mean it feels to me like there's a bit of pressure automatically applied at that point because it's like okay you better make this work
1: yeah i guess so i i think i always believed that i'd make it to formula 1 i think as a, as a, as a child you're a bit naive in that regard when i was probably 11 years old i believed i could achieve anything i felt like i could fly to the moon and back easily. And I remember this one race that I said, I'm, I'm going to overtake this bus on the last lap in this corner because I felt like I could do it. And it was the most stupid thing ever, but I managed to achieve it. And at that age, I just felt like I could do anything. And that probably played against me as I grew up slightly. And when I left school at 14, I had a similar view that I felt like I could achieve anything in this world. You go out, you win, and you'll be a Formula One world champion before you know it. And it was only when I was 15 or 16 that I started to recognize that life isn't as straightforward as that. You know, you may be very talented, but you need to do a hell of a lot more if you want to make it. The stars need to align, especially in a sport like ours where there's only 20 race seats available. And it's not like there's 20 race seats available every year. There's only one or two race seats available every year for, for a great driver to come in, a great driver's got to leave. So, I was growing up racing against thousands of different kids, all striving for that same goal, yet every year there's only going to be one or two, if you're lucky, make it to Formula One. And I guess, yeah, when I was 16, I realised...
0: How, how did you come to that realisation then?
1: When I was 15, I had a bit of a tricky year in go-karting. That was probably my, my, my worst year in go-karts.
4: Is that your first year after you'd left education as well?
1: Yeah, it, it was. I then raced uh, my first year in single-seaters in, in Formula 4. So, you know, that's a small Formula 1 car, effectively bottom of the, of the range when you're 16 to 18 years old. And I won that championship, but I hadn't been picked up from a Formula 1 team. And I was sort of thinking to myself, you know, what do I need to do to get an opportunity with an F1 team? I've, I've won this championship, I've won races. I didn't dominate the championship but I won the championship and I wasn't getting that break as such. And it was towards the end, tail end of that year. I thought this might not work. And that's when at the end of that season, I got Toto's email and emailed him. Did you?
3: Mm.
0: That's interesting.
4: There's two questions here I'm interested in is one. How did you process what might have felt to me? If I'm imagining being in your position, a sense of mild panic at this stage that you've 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 gone all in on getting picked up and you're not getting picked up. So how did you handle that? And this email that you sent, I'm fascinated to know what did you say?
1: I thought at the age of 16, the world would come to me. And as I said, it was only during that year that I realized they're not looking for me. You've got to go and look for them. You've got to knock on their door. You know, Toto is not going to look at British Formula 4 and say, you know, there's a kid, George Russell here, who's won the championship by a couple of points. We need to sign him. But if I put myself in front of him and talk to him and show him what I'm made of, maybe there's an opportunity. So I remember I was in Abu Dhabi at the time doing a a test in Formula 3. I managed to get hold of his email and I thought, I've got nothing to lose. You know, worst case, he doesn't reply. In which case, I've lost nothing. Best case, he replies, and I literally just sent him an email. I didn't want to go in too hard. I just said, you know, I'm George Russell. I race this. It'd be great to meet you and, and talk about the future potentially. And um, I think it was a good time to do it as well. I think timing is key. Ved just won the championship. He, he was standing himself on the podium after the... the and was that run. luck
0: on your part or was that a bit of foresight?
1: That was luck. But now I look back and I realise, you know, these small things make a difference. You know, you you need somebody on the receiving end to be in the right state of mind if he's having a bad day or he's busy and he sees this if I sent that email one week earlier which is the Tuesday before Abu Dhabi Grand Prix last race of the season he probably would have seen it and disregarded it but it was the Tuesday after Abu Abu Dhabi Grand Prix season's over he's relaxed won the championship you know here's an opportunity oh this you know this kid's just emailed me and I sent this email I think it was about 9pm and he replied within 15 minutes with his PAs um, Copied in saying hi, George. Nice to to hear from you, and it'd be great to to meet you in in January. And uh, four weeks later, I
0: sat in his office. And what was said that day?
1: To be honest, not a lot was was said that day. I told him about my career. He asked a lot of questions. He was obviously very very nice and gave me a lot of time. And I think something I've realised about Toto since day one, he gives everybody a huge amount of time. But it wasn't as simple as all right, we're going to sign you today, and that's that. We left that conversation saying, right, I'm now going to race in Formula 3. This is where you're taking the next step. You know, We'll keep an eye on you and we'll stay in touch and we'll go from there. And it was only at the end of 2015 where we picked up the conversation again. And that's when I signed for for Mercedes.
0: And what did you do in that intervening period? Because I think this is, again, valuable for people who are never going to race in motorsport, but have got an ambition and they know where they want to go. What did you do to stay on his radar? Like to kind of almost almost let him feel that he was part of your career even before you were signed. Do you know what I mean? Rather than just disappearing for a year and reappearing, which I think some people would do.
1: Yeah, so he, he actually gave me some advice to join a certain team in Formula 3. So this was a German team who raced with a Mercedes engine, Mercedes-backed, and I think it'd be a great place for you. So I, said, I appreciate your, your opinion, and I, I went and did a test with them. And I ended up joining a British team Carlin with a Volkswagen and engine. So as soon as I signed with with Carlin, I sent Toto an email just saying I really um thanked your advice, did a test with with the German team, but I felt like joining the British team with the VW engine would be better for my my future progress. And I feel like I'd learn more with the British team than with the German team. And he replied again straight away saying, you know, I sort of jokingly, I think you're making the wrong decision, but best of luck, let's stay in touch and let's see how he gets on. So I think having that follow-up email where it wasn't so formal in a way it was a bit more informal and I'd almost gone against what he had advised he probably saw that um it's quite intriguing you know there's mm-hmm. you know this 17 year old kid now 16 year old kid who has almost gone in the opposite direction to, to what he advised and that was it until I think until December when there was an, an award ceremony and Toto was there and I thought oh, this is my opportunity to go and speak with him again, and. um that's where it started.
4: So it sounds to me like you've started to pull on a golden thread almost where it gives you a line of sight of, I know where I want to get to now. And it gives you a sense of direction. How frequently when you made a decision, whether it's the team that you joined in Formula Three or it, like a particular decision about a race and how you are going to respond, were you thinking about, about what you were going to say to Toto or what Mercedes would perceive?
1: Going into that season, I just thought it's all results-based. I've almost done the groundwork now of putting those foundations with with Mercedes, with Toto. I just need to go out there and perform. Even though there wasn't a contract on the table, straight away I felt like I had a good relationship with him. And having performed, it gives you a lot of ammunition to uh, argue your case. So I think you've got to go out there, make your point, then almost leave it and then do the talking on the track or whatever industry it is
0: you're in. But also a real belief in the decisions you're making, like, are you doing all this at this point? Or are you, is your dad going, George, send another email <laughs> to Toto or your mum, while she's, you know, chatting to you at the dinner table, she's going, have you messaged that guy from Mercedes again? Or is or are you kind of, again, as we've spoken about a couple of times already in a kind of, in your own world, controlling your, your own destiny?
1: Yeah, to be honest, it, most of this came from my own thoughts yeah. really, but I'm sure it's, from the way I've been brought up from, from my parents. And I guess they always taught me, you got to go out there and and make it happen for yourself. So even though it wasn't my father saying, you know, send this email to Toto, I was sort of on my own accord going out there and, and trying to create these, these opportunities. And as I said, it was only when I was 16, I recognized if I want to achieve my dream. And it wasn't just my dream, it was also my family's dream. There'd been so much sacrifice for my father, for my mother. My father used to work every day, you know, half seven till half seven. Never saw him through the week on a Friday night. We're jumping the camper van, driving up and down the UK. And as a child, you don't really comprehend what's going on here. You know, why is dad not home for dinner tonight and tomorrow night and the day after? He's there working his socks off to, you know, put food on the table, make a living to be able to afford to go go kart racing. It's not straightforward. And, as I said, I, by that age of 16, I'd won again in Formula 4, but didn't really have the money to go and race in Formula 3. If I didn't have sponsorship, that could have been the end of a journey. So it's sort of now and in my court thinking, I've got to go and do something because clearly winning isn't just enough. And
4: what did that do in terms of your perception of pressure? So as you say, like you almost were naive to not appreciate never seeing your dad. And it's just the way things are. And then you say that realisation dawns of shit, he's been working hard yeah. to give me these opportunities.
1: Yeah. I don't really know how that played on me in terms of that additional pressure. I think for sure my father was very hard on me during my whole racing career. Go cool. What do you mean by that? And we're just in go-karting. You've got my, my father was my mechanic throughout my go-kart career. My mum Used to write down all of the data on her little notepad, all the setups, all the lap times, everything logged in this one pound fifty notepad from W H Smith or, or whatever. And it was so passionate for all of us. And you know, they're standing on the sidelines, they're seeing me racing, seeing me succeed. But equally, if I'm ever making a mistake, because I think he was going through a lot of pressure. You know, work was not straightforward for him all of that time and sacrifice he was making if ever he saw his son going out there and not putting in the effort you know, during the race weekend or you know, I'm more interested playing football with my mates in between the sessions or messing around you know, I guess that would probably wind him up quite a lot and he would uh, let me know about it because you know he's putting all this effort in for a reason I need to go out there and, and show that it's worth it and I can't be there dicking around just having a good time when kind of we're but, here to win.
4: But then does that affect the father son dynamic is it more than coach athlete? Yeah,
1: I think so. I probably didn't have the greatest relationship with my father through those karting days because we were like a race team. It was almost like we weren't there to have a good time, we were kind of there to win. And if we won, we had a good time of course and we'd always remember we'd always stop off at KFC on the way home if ever we won a race and as a kid, you know, I, really enjoyed that so that was kind of my reward at the end of a weekend if if you did a good job and obviously those moments are so special but equally on the flip side if it doesn't go to plan you know i felt it but then i would see it affecting my father and you know my mother maybe less so but yeah for sure that added yeah added an element of pressure and that's probably why when i got to a maturer age you know you know 16 and realizing right my father has been through not just ten years of this with me; it's ten years prior with my brother as well. You know, this a twenty years worth of you know passion and hard work. I need to almost pull my finger out now and and almost not not let them down.
0: And that's probably why even today, when you don't have a great race weekend, you don't go out and mm. have some food with people. You kind of do, I guess, what you learned really in that period in your life, which was you know to try and process that. So. It, It's been so interesting to hear that, you know, people think stuff comes for free. If you've got talent, you'll get into Formula One, right? That's clearly not the case here. You know, you've had to make these sacrifices, have various little moments along the way where you've had to make the right decision and you do and you end up in Formula One. And I remember watching from afar because this was interesting for me because obviously I was doing bits and pieces with Formula One as you were starting out on your journey and then I watched you come through and you know, you were the most successful young British driver for a period when there were some great British drivers. Alex Albon was you know, based in the UK racing under a Thai flag and Landon Norris, obviously, at the same time. So I then remember watching your first season at Williams but those guys are in a Red Bull and a McLaren and are uh, picking up points, picking up podiums and you're... Not. I'd love to know how that felt and how you processed that from being, as you described as a young guy, like you just won everything. That's what you did. And suddenly you weren't.
1: Yeah, That was a really unique season for me, my first year in Formula One, joining Williams and a team that was on the brink of bankruptcy. And it was a team of every single race weekend. It was racing to survive. It wasn't racing to perform. The team was racing to survive and the 800 peoples jobs at stake and there was no doubt you know when I got to the first race in Australia I'm here in Formula One you know almost one dream accomplished and go out on track and we're four seconds off the pace the car's falling apart and we're being lapped two or three times kind of thinking to yourself you know is this the dream but I think I've always had quite a rational view to things and while seeing Alex in Red Bull scoring podiums and, you know, being the man to a degree and Lando equally always in the points. And that was sort of difficult to digest because I'd just come from Formula Two where I I beat them. And now, you know, I've almost just been put How did you digest it? I thought that even though they're finishing the points and they're scoring podiums, I'm not here to... Score points or podiums. I'm here to win, it and I want to win. And even though they were finishing ahead of me, I'm. We're both. We're all going through this journey towards together, learning. I was part of Mercedes, and I felt like my time will come. So I think every time you, from a from a difficult situation, you've got to try and look at the positives from it. I was driving at the back of a grid, kind of under the radar. I was making a few mistakes that season, but not many people noticed because people want the spotlight wasn't on me. The spotlight was on the guys at the front. Equally, the spotlight was on Lando and Alex. And if ever they made a mistake, the whole world knew about it. So I saw this as an opportunity that, you know, I'm in Formula 1, going to 21 different countries, 21 different races, uh, different circuits. This is my opportunity to learn and perhaps try things that, for example, Alex and Lando didn't have the opportunity to because the spotlight was on. Every single weekend was… Also,
0: you couldn't have done these things either because… You and previous seasons were racing for titles and championships every year, so you had no exploration behind the wheel, did you?
1: No, absolutely. I think, and that was a real mentality change for me. I had a teammate uh, in Robert Kubica, who had a horrific accident in two thousand and eleven, I think it was, and he'd been out of an F one car for for a long, long time, and he had a very difficult season. So I was almost racing in no man's land. But there was this one race in Monaco. I was driving around. I was ahead of Robert by quite, quite, a, quite a margin. I was behind the, the next gaggle of cars. And I kind of thought to myself, I'm just going to bring the car home because what's the point in risking it? You know, I've kind of achieved all I can in this race. I can't beat the cars ahead. I've already beaten the car behind. And there was a moment in that race that I thought, this will teach me nothing. If I just drive around for the next hour and a half, just bringing the car home, this isn't going to help me in one year time, two years time, three years time if ever I'm racing for a Mercedes, if ever I'm racing for a race win or world championships. So I just sort of turned up and just went absolutely flat out every single lap around Monaco, kind of risking everything for 19th position on the grid, because I felt like that's what I needed to do if I wanted to learn and progress. And it's from that moment on for the rest of the season, that sort of every single race, every single qualifying, every single session was this opportunity for me to build a you know, greater toolbox of experience for me to to tap into whenever I needed it in the future. I love that because that's
4: something that as I'm listening to it is the first time you're almost driving without pressure because there's no expectation on yours has yeah. previously come. And then you find pressure within you put yourself under some kind of pressure.
1: Yeah. It was, I was racing against myself. Yeah. You know, I, I stopped thinking about my teammate and I stopped thinking about everyone else because we were so far behind, we couldn't compete with anybody else. So I was purely competing with myself and I'd have races or sessions where I finished 19th. I was ahead of my teammate, behind everyone else. but I was really disappointed with my performance because I knew I could have done better. And for some of my team at the time it was a little bit difficult to, to understand, you know, on paper, I'd finished in the same place as I finished last race. All of those boxes were ticked, but I knew I could have done better. And I think that's really helped me yeah. to develop from a you know this difficult situation. I could have done that whole season, just tootled around, and I'd have got to the following year. Then I'm slightly more in the game. But I've just wasted a whole season. So I think every single opportunity you've got, you've got to make the most of it. So
4: tell us then, what did you learn about yourself in this season of discovery and, and exploring your own limits? What's the biggest lesson that came out from that?
1: I think the biggest lesson was probably success is all relative. You know, when I grew up as a young go-kart driver and going through the ranks of F4 to F, F2, success was being on pole position and winning. And when I got to Formula One, That just was not achievable in the Williams in that season. So I couldn't come away from every single weekend being disappointed with myself because I've not been on pole and I've not won the race. You have to readjust your expectations and you have to find your own successes. You know, I would celebrate when I was only half a second away from 18th from the grid rather than being a second away. Because that was relative success. And for me, that was kind of like a pole position. And if I didn't celebrate those moments, that 21 race season would have felt incredibly long. And that helped me to um, yeah, sort of get through that season and to progress as a driver. Are you glad that you had it? I think so. I, I never want to look back and say things should have been different. I think every single opportunity, every single year, whether it's a good year or a bad year, adds to your sort of development and it made me who I am if I was in a mercedes fighting for victories I wouldn't have had those mm. experiences and I've probably been through in that regard maybe more than what you know alex or lando has lando's been at mclaren now for 5 years he's been fighting for the odd podium or pole position for 5 years now whereas I've been on sort of every end of the spectrum yeah. and you've got to see that as an advantage you know, he hasn't been right at the back of a grid. But equally, he's not been right at the front of a grid in in McLaren. And it's no through no fault of his own. You know, Lando's an exceptional driver, but you know that's an advantage I've got got to take from that. Yeah, I mean, I think I think what you're
4: describing there is fascinating. There's research on this that your brain response like releases the chemicals to celebrate whatever your expectations are. So if you expect to get half a second quicker and you do it, yeah. Your brain releases the same chemical because you've hit your target. Well, so, if
0: your target was to win the world title, you'd get the same chemical release as
4: as fi- half a second where Jules faster. was finishing at that point, right? Yeah. So, how do you deal with
1: like setting micro targets now? I, n- I never like to look too far ahead. I like to take every single day as it comes, and I believe that if I perform to my very best today, if I perform to my very best tomorrow, whether that's in the gym, whether that's you know, talking with you guys, whether that's talking to my engineers, whether that's in the simulator, whether that's a Friday practice session. If I do the, the best job possible that I can do every single day, I'll achieve that overall goal. So it's obvious I want to be a world champion. It's too obvious to even set that as, as a goal because it's that's what we're all here to do. You know, My goal was to wake up today and make sure that I do everything right. And go to bed thinking I couldn't have done more than I've done. And if I achieve that every single day, that, that goal of world champion will come.
0: So, we had a really interesting conversation with Johnny Wilkinson. What year were you born? 98. So, you, do you remember England winning the Rugby yeah. World Cup? You were yeah. five years old. You were young. I, I
1: don't remember it, but I've. Uh, <laughs> you know the moment. The, yeah, I know the moment.
0: How long do you reckon he said the thrill lasted?
1: I think I listened to his his podcast (laughs) so it's 30 seconds
0: right yeah and what was really interesting with that conversation was that was the moment where he realized that life isn't about having that moment where the light shines and you're the world champion and then suddenly you're happy that's delaying happiness till you get to that moment and I think what you're talking about here is you've realized as he has but he only realized it after setting that huge goal achieving it and realizing it wasn't actually going to give him a thrill or any length of fulfillment it's about being totally in the moment all the time. So, you know, when we're having this conversation, you can give it 50%, but it won't fulfill us. It won't fulfill you. It won't fulfill anyone. And then you go on to the next thing. And if you give that kind of 50%, because all you're thinking about is winning the world title, your whole life will be missed opportunities, flat experiences, absolutely dull moments. And then guess what? If you don't win the world title, what a waste it's been. Changing everything for that moment. Does that make sense? Yeah, definitely.
1: And I'll always remember. I got obviously such an opportunity when um, I jumped in for for Lewis in two thousand twenty. Obviously, he came down with with COVID and jumped in last minute into the Mercedes. They would they'd already won the world championship. That was probably their most dominant race car they ever produced. And I'm coming from a Williams that I was finishing nineteenth every single race weekend, didn't score any points thrown into that car and I qualified second 20 milliseconds behind my teammate and I was disappointed. And that was just such a learning for me thinking, you know, this is my best qualify. I've never qualified inside the top 10. I've just missed out on pole position by 20 milliseconds. And I'm disappointed with that because for me, I felt like I could have done better. The The expectation had changed. And even though that was by far better than anything I'd, I'd achieved previously
0: it wasn't all that when did you realize that is this a long period after or is that at the at the time you thought why am i feeling like this
1: well straight away i was disappointed with with second and it was probably that evening i realized that winning probably isn't everything in terms of fulfilling that happiness i want to win more than anything but if you're going out there to achieve happiness Winning will give that to you for a short period of time, but that's, you win once, you want to win two times, you win two times, you want to win three times. You It's never ending. And I think that's what I've, I've learned on this, this journey and why maybe those three years at Williams for me, I dealt with quite well because, as I said, I wanted to be a world champion and seeing sort of my rivals in Alex and Lando having uh, relatively a bit more success in the, in the interim They weren't winning either. And they'd already been content with their points finishes. They'd finished in the points almost every single race. They were disappointed with not getting podiums. Then Alex scored a few podiums. He's then disappointed that he's not winning. And it's, I think it's never going to stop. You know, I'm yet to win a race and I'm working my ass off to to try and win a race. You know, when I win one race, I'm not going to say that's my life fulfilled. It's you know, I want to win another another race and another race, and then it's I wanna win the championship. When you win one championship, you wanna win another championship. So you need to find that way of balancing professional life and trying to get that success, but also trying to find your happiness. Yeah. Potentially somewhere somewhere else as well, because it's um probably if you're looking for that in your profession yeah. and just from pure success, I don't think you're gonna achieve it.
4: I think that's a fascinating insight to reach because especially I'm thinking of you've left school at 14. There may be lessons that you learn by doing exams or going through a process like that, or less bruising experiences like your first girlfriend or like falling out with a group of friends at school. And yet you're having to learn this in the bright lights of
1: formula one. Yeah. I think leaving school at 14 had its pros and cons. I Obviously, so as I said, leaving that social life and people of the same age as me and and friends was obviously difficult. But then I was always surrounded by people who were in their mid to late 20s. You know, my, um, when I was racing professionally, go karting, my, my go kart mechanics when I was in Formula 4, my race engineer who was you know, 50 years old, dealing with people at such a young age who have experienced so much in life, experienced so much within that sport. And you didn't necessarily have the bad influence around to mess about. I was terrible at school. I used to always sit at the back and mess around with my friends. Whereas if I was in that classroom on my own directly with the teacher, I wouldn't have been doing that. And I'd have been so focused in educating myself and and trying to be a better better person. And that was kind of going from one extreme to a kid who's now working hard with his 50-year-old engineer to try and be, a better racing driver and going, you know, for dinner with with him and the mechanics who are in the 30s or late 20s who are living a very different life to what I would have been living at the age of 14 and 15.
2: Small details are big surfaces, tight corners are odd shapes, flat, rounded, textured or tall. Whatever your next project, there's a spray paint pattern that's just right. Because Rust-Oleum's new Custom Spray 5-in-1 gives you control with five different spray patterns. So you can tackle nooks, crannies, edges, and curves without worrying about drips, runs, uneven coverage, or anything else. Custom Spray 5-in-1. Only from Rust-Oleum.
3: This Mother's Day, celebrate the extraordinary women in your life with a heartfelt gift from Blue Nile.
0: so you've had qualifying in the Mercedes you finished second thankfully you've processed the fact that's not a failure and you know you can be happy at all times regardless of what's happening but then comes race day and that amazing start you had where you sent it down the inside of Valtteri and took the lead in that race could you talk us through the the process you went through that evening after you'd processed qualifying that morning and how conscious was the decision that that's how you were going to start the race you know you were going to kind of Almost like lay a layer marker down in that moment against a guy who, let's be clear, you wanted his seat, right? And this was the first chance in your whole career to be judged against him. <laughs> yeah,
1: I think that whole weekend I went in with the mentality that I've got nothing to lose. You know, he's the driver who's been in that car for four years now, then the whole season in that race car. This is 17th race of the season, I think it was. I'm coming in, got called up on a Wednesday afternoon. If I finish behind him, I'm expected to finish behind him because of the the circumstances, but if I beat him, that's huge. And that I think fueled my motivation of thinking, wow, what an opportunity. I've got nothing to lose and I can just go for it. And I think waking up on Sunday morning, I just think it's just it's just another race. Even though this was the biggest race of my career at that point, it was just another race. And I think as something I've tried to take forward is every race You can't build it up into something that's more than what it is. You do these practice days, you do your training sessions, you go through that process. And if you're going to qualify all hyped up, this is qualifying, I need to go out there. This is the biggest qualifying of my career. I feel a bit anxious and a bit tight and a bit stressed in that scenario. Whereas I treat it like a practice session. You know, every training session I do, every practice session I do, I'm going to, I'm trying to be the best I can. I'm trying to drive as fast as I can. So, when I get to qualifying now, I'm just going to do the same as what I did in training. When I get to the race now, I'm going to do the same as what I did in training because I train to do the very best possible. So, as soon as the helmet was on and you're on that starting grid, there was no one in front of me other than obviously my teammate in Valtteri, but there was no cars directly ahead. It just felt like another race. And it was incredible how that mentality was. You know, you're just looking at those start lights. I've got to make a good start and I've got to try and overtake it turn one and that's the exact same men- mentality as I had from starting second there on pole position at, at one of the races this year or when I was starting last with, with Williams
4: I think there's something about intentionality here though as well because I'm reminded as you're describing that that experience you said when you were 14 and you went I'm going to beat that guy on that last on that bend on in the last lap where you're going in and imposing yourself on a situation so although you're you calm because it's just another race. There's something about imposing yourself and imposing your will on a situation. How conscious was that, that you're now in a place where you can go in and impose yourself on that race?
1: I think you, you recognize certain circumstances are obviously bigger than others and you want to try and do big things. So I knew, if well, I've got half an opportunity. I'm absolutely going to go for it. Because that is the moment where the spotlight truly is on. Even though you'd go in with the same mentality when the spotlight wasn't, that you realise you know you've you've got to go for that that opportunity as such. And um, yeah, as I said, as soon as you you launch off the line and you see half an opportunity, you know, this is the guy who I'm battling for that race seat. I can't leave anything off the table, and I don't want to come away with any regrets. It was a very unique circumstance to be in and especially yeah. as I said you know battling directly with the guy you're trying to to take his seat from.
0: Well it felt like a fairy tale I remember at the time thinking this guy's been supported by Mercedes he's done the hard yards he's been in the Williams this strange opportunity has come about because of a global pandemic that's you know struck down one of the drivers now he's in the lead this was always meant to be <laughs> uh, but that's, that's it not it didn't, the way didn't,
1: it didn't, didn't, No it didn't quite pan out that way you know, I got A puncher in that race, um, effectively lost, lost a victory through a puncher, but by having that puncher in the race, it also gave me an opportunity to carve my way back through the field and overtake Valtteri again, which in a way was almost a bigger statement than what it would have been had I just won the race and cleared off into the distance. And I obviously finished that race incredibly disappointed and upset That I wasn't standing on the top step of that podium. But probably within 24 hours, I thought perhaps this is a blessing in disguise. You know, I had such an opportunity to show what I was capable of. I think if I just went out there and won that race, probably the respect wouldn't have been there because it almost would have been too easy. Whereas people saw me fight for every single opportunity. They saw me fight at the start. They saw me fight back through to feel they saw that passion of when I got the punch and it felt, it felt like the people watching was on that journey with me. That was two years ago. It feels like yesterday, but if I won that right race, I'd have been you know, one time formula one winner. It would not have changed anything for me. And even though it would have meant the world at the time, I'm here to try and be a formula one world champion. And I would be no happier or sadder today yeah. had I won that race, so it was quite quite an in, intriguing uh, thought.
0: You might not want to answer this with total honesty, but I'd love it if you did. Did you think that the performance you put in that day meant at the end of the season you'd be in that Mercedes?
1: I always believed I'd I'd be in the Mercedes, and and Toto made it very clear: just go out, perform, yeah, and leave the rest to me. And that wasn't that weekend; that was throughout my whole career when I was racing in Formula Three. He said go and win, I'll sort the rest. I won, he sorted the rest, I raced F2. Go and win, and you'll be in F1 next year. I won, and I was in F1, and he had the same mentality. He knew I wanted to be in a Mercedes. Mercedes was the seat that every single F1 driver wanted to be in. And he made it clear, go and perform, and you'll be in the car.
0: But you did perform, and you didn't... Well, the- I had
1: I had a three-year contract with, with right. Williams. That was probably the the biggest difficulty, is... When we signed for Williams, they were a team who were fighting for podiums, fighting for pole positions. They had one bad year in 2018, but we thought that was, you know, a one-off, and they'd be back to not winning ways, but you know, fighting in that mid-pack. And um, Claire Williams, who ran the team at the time, she kind of had had us by the balls, let's say, and um, you know, that was the only opportunity to get into Formula One. That was uh, the last remaining seat she basically said it's three years or, or nothing Right. so you obviously went for it and we thought at the time three years with Williams it's not going to be a bad place because you know they've been fighting for podiums for the, for the previous four years they had a bad year in 2018 but you know it's a new season they could be back to to some some good ways and then we so, soon learned that it was a difficult situation for the team and they had difficulty with sponsorship they had a sponsor pull out the pandemic came and as I said it was a battle of survival for them
0: but it, it would have been hard I imagine and correct me if I'm wrong to to get that your first ever taste of a competitive Formula 1 car and then go back not just for a, a few more races but an, an entire season like hungry man like yeah. wanting that back all the yeah, time yeah absolutely
1: once you've got that opportunity it motivates you to to fight even harder to make sure you're there always and I remember the first time I ever drove a Formula 1 car was in, when I was 17 years old That speed and thrill I got from experiencing that Formula One car. I always wanted to be a Formula One driver, but I had added motivation and fire within my stomach to achieve that because that was just such an awesome experience. And the same with almost been on pole. That was such an experience and what I'd almost dreamt of my whole life. I wanted that every single weekend. So, you know, I went out the following year and 2021 was probably my most competitive year in in Formula One.
0: Obviously, that was the year when you had that coming together with Valtteri, right? Mm. What happened when you stood in for Lewis was kind of out of your control and was great for you.
1: Yeah,
0: and I think the general perception was that that moment wasn't great for you. How was it from your perspective that that moment against Valtteri? And I'm interested also in how Mercedes and Toto dealt with that because that was almost the first time that maybe there was a difficult. When we came
1: together and obviously crashing into the driver whose seat you're trying to take and the team who have supported you your whole career. <laughs> that yeah. wasn't
0: on the plan, it right? Wasn't,
1: it definitely wasn't on the plan, but I think it's where those sort of killer instincts come in because I was a Williams driver. The thing with, with Williams is I'd, I'd been there for two years. We'd scored zero points. The teams who finish eighth, ninth, tenth in the championship, they often don't score more than 10 points in a whole season. So if you ever get that one opportunity to score one or two points, that is huge for the team. And also financially, if you could finish ninth or eighth in the Constructors' Championship, you're talking tens of millions of dollars in prize money extra you are given. So this is a team that's struggling to survive on the brink of bankruptcy. I'm in a race. I'm in 11th position. And when you're in a car like that, you've got to put it all on the line. You're not going to score points if you're conservative and play Mr. Consistent. It didn't even really cross my mind that it was Valtry and a Mercedes. That was an opening to score points for myself, for my team, and I had to go for it. But it was probably that moment I was spinning sideways through the grass at 200 miles an hour. What did you think when you realised
0: who it was that you'd had to come in together with?
1: It, it was quite a scary moment because I'd never crashed at that speed before doing 330 kilometres an hour, Uh, DRS open, got on a wet patch, and the car just spun. I'm going sideways down the track, carbon fibre flying everywhere. I can't see to my right because you're kind of locked in the cockpit. I don't know what I'm going to hit, and I'm sort of bracing for impact. Fortunately enough, the overall impact wasn't too bad, and we sort of um, slowed down into the gravel and hit the barrier slightly. Your initial reaction, you're so much Adrenaline. As I said, you're crashing at 200 miles an hour. Firstly, I was furious with Valtteri, which was probably not the right thing to do uh, because that was an opportunity that I saw that has now just disappeared. You know, it wasn't that I've just crashed into to Valtteri or Mercedes. It's that is points we've lost. And I thought that he'd lost for us. And that was probably also a lesson for me that you need to look at the overall picture from other uh people's view before taking a yes. snap judgment and i was you know very hot-headed and went over and you know, he was also hot-headed you know middle fingers were flying and okay. the uvf the and the c words were being thrown around and it was all a bit of a not a very pleasant situation and that was also a really good learning for me you need to take a moment to, to think about it before snap judgments but when it comes to mercedes i didn't really know what to think i was flying home with toto that evening it was always the case so you know the one flight that i take with him a year it was that that one he was very upset with the situation and pretty pretty angry also because that was the very first year of this new financial cost cap that had been implemented and the damage that occurred in that incident for mercedes was i think one and a half million dollars so that's one and a half million dollars taken away from the sort of overall budget. So he was obviously very upset and frustrated about that. It was all just a messy, not a good situation. We left it for the following day. And then I went around his house for lunch on on Saturday and everything was was no problem at all. And, and we moved on from it. So I feel like situations like that, you almost grow together. It sort of pulls you closer and... um I actually, as it happened, built a probably closer relationship with Valtteri's group of engineers and, and team, because I knew them already, but they all knew that there was a potential that I'd be replacing him. They're actually my team today. And I you know, went over, I called them all and said, I'm really sorry for what happened on Sunday uh you know there's a lot of work just
0: for, for the mechanic. on the, you got them together yeah. no it was it
1: was only them? it was only it was only sort of the the, the chief mechanic and uh, chief engineer for him yeah. so I spoke to them both just uh, you know really sorry for how how that panned out and they said look don't worry about it and um was that suggested by Toto or
4: you no to it work?
1: was to be honest i'm not too sure where where it came from i knew all of these guys anyway because i'd right. been i was a junior driver for mercedes so you know, I'd often flown with the Mercedes team. I had good a good relationship with everyone. So it wasn't a sort of difficult thing to 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 come by. But obviously a strange dynamic. I'm a Williams driver crashing into a Mercedes driver. And then I'm sort of on the phone to the Mercedes team saying, look, I'm sorry for how that, that panned out. But you know, I feel I'm almost glad for that crash because I feel better for it. You know, I feel a more rounded person. I see things maybe slightly differently. And these moments in life, I guess, mature you. There's no perfect moments, and you need mistakes t- to grow.
0: Was there ever a fear from you that it would cost you to drive? No.
1: Yeah. To be honest, uh, because my argument was, you know, I was in in that in a position that was better than where the Williams should be, and he was in a position worse than where the Mercedes should be at the time. So I kind of naively and selfishly. Use that incident as almost uh, an argument yeah. for me, which well, a chance is, to
0: remind them that their current driver was further back than he should have. Yeah, been, yeah, yeah.
1: So you can look at it from yeah. from so many different angles, and whether the crash was my fault, whether it was it, it wasn't his fault, but it was there was an opportunity there. It was a very audacious overtake attempt, and Toto actually said, you know, a couple of days later, he admired the fact that when I was sort of spinning out, I was still flat out on the throttle going sideways through, through the the grass towards the wall at 200 miles an hour and sort of said that shows the sort of driver who I am. So even though from these difficult negative situations, there's always a positive that comes from it.
4: I'm intrigued by that journey back with Toto the night after that crash. And I'm hearing parallels of the journey back with your dad and your mum in the car after <laughs> those weekends when you're yeah. not getting KFC. Yeah. And that one leads me to want to explore that relationship and the parallels between your dad and Toto. <laughs>
1: <laughs> I've seen some videos of Toto with his son go-karting recently, and there probably are some parallels there between my father and, and Toto as a father to, to, to his son. But like what? I think you live this with, Your son in that journey. So if they're not succeeding, you're also not succeeding. And that was the case when I was sort of driving. If I didn't win a race, that was obviously a failure for me. And I felt that, but my father felt that. But I think then when you've got that added personal investment, you know, at the time for my father, it was the financial side, you know, it was whether I've had a crash and damaged the cart or just not won the race, you almost feel like, what was all that work? What I spent, you know, God knows how much, for nothing. For Toto, during the race weekend, it's obviously he's, you know, he part owns the team, but also he's there to win. And that's, that incident was going to compromise the team slightly for for the season. So he felt that frustration as well. And almost, disappointment so we almost both felt the failures as such but for different reasons sure. so in a way you know when i came back from the kart track with my father and i hadn't won i was upset but he was sort of very upset that was kind of a, similar with toto and i you know i was obviously upset the fact that i'd lost points for williams he was very upset that i had had the crash probably how i conducted myself but more so the fact that Valtteri didn't score points and it's damaged the cars and the team's going to have to work a lot harder and it's going to potentially compromise their season slightly. So yeah, there's definitely some parallels, no doubt.
4: Because when we interviewed just Capito, he spoke to us about his dad was similar uh, as in he'd funded him when he was coming through the ranks and he described how his dad wouldn't speak to him for a week mm. if he lost. And he now has this mantra that second place is nowhere. Yeah. That you, you either win or you're nothing. And he described how that was actually a real source of strength to him through his career. Do you think that gave you strength or do you think you could have benefited from, say, having a like your dad or Toto actually put an arm around your shoulder and comfort you and help you process that loss?
1: At the time, I definitely didn't think it was, I didn't think it was beneficial. But now I look back and I I really do, I definitely would not have changed one single way how my father raised me and took care of me during my carting career. And even on those times where, you know, there were tears, you know, for sure, as a a young kid, and you feel like you've let your, your dad down. But that definitely made me stronger. And you always want that love and affection, of course. But what was I chasing in my life? Was I chasing love and affection? Or was I chasing trying to be a Formula one or champion.
4: But I'm intrigued as how it affects your wider relationships now. Like if you're in a, it, like, like with a partner yeah. and they're upset, yeah. like, like we often learn from our parents or the example around us. Yeah. Do you have the capacity to be able to comfort people when they're struggling or do, or is it more that same mindset of just get on with it?
1: I mean, Toto said to me after that crash, you know, I am hardest on the ones i care about most and yeah that's what sort of resonated with me a little bit and you know whether you know my girlfriend or my family or whatever if they're going through a tough time whether it's work or personal whatever i think you need to strike that right balance you know my my girlfriend is works in finance it's definitely not a, an easy industry to work in a lot of long hours and you know, after a tough day, of course you want to, to give love and affection and put your arm around them. But equally I want to see her succeed and I know what she's capable of. And sometimes you do need someone to um, look at things from a different perspective. And you know, my father, he, with his mentality, he's been hard on me because he only wants the best for me. And I totally agree and believe in that. And it might be something in the time you don't recognise, but I guess you may be thankful for later down the line. Yeah,
0: we we often have a phrase because this is a very common conversation with people who've reached your level in life. That just because something is hard for you doesn't mean it's bad for you. No, absolutely. And I think we've gone through many moments that have been hard but not bad.
1: I have learned the most in my life from my failures and my most difficult moments. I feel like success and victory is such an easy thing to deal with. No one needs to know how to celebrate a success. If you achieve something, you're elated, you're so happy, let's go and celebrate, let's have a glass of champagne or whatever. But often you don't sort of take away any learnings from that. And in the moment, it feels so great and you feel like you've accomplished so much. But perhaps it's not going to add much benefit later down the line. Maybe it will and you'll continue on that path and, and great if you do. But those failures are the times where you really question yourself, your processes. Am I doing this right? Could I be doing this better? I don't want to experience that ever again. I get more motivation from failing to never feel that again than when I do from succeeding. You know, I've I've not had a lot of success this season, but when I scored pole position in Hungary, that was such an elation and such a great feeling. I obviously had motivation to I want to achieve that again and experience that. But if I compare it with Singapore or Silverstone, when I had a terrible race weekend, I feel stronger about not having the weekends like Silverstone and Singapore than having that success.
4: So, what's more effective for you? Playing like racing to win or racing not to lose?
1: Uh, it's definitely all, all about racing to win. But I think, in terms of your progress, you need to lose to be able to win. And I think this year, I've had some failure. I've had a small amount of success across the road. It's been quite a Mercedes. We're here to to win. They've won the championship for the last eight years. And obviously we haven't, we've yet to score a victory this season. So that's not been where we've wanted to achieve, but we've been very consistent. We've achieved the results and we've been solid, but we're not here to be solid. We are here to win. And I think you need to put it all on the line sometimes to get it right but equally when you get it wrong that's where you progress the most in my opinion
0: I wonder whether um, actually the speed of the Mercedes has been a benefit to you this year because I'm, I'm sure that when you first went out in free season you were like oh this is the title winning car this yeah. isn't going to win a title but if you and Lewis were battling for race wins battling for titles then very quickly you can have a divide very quickly you've seen it we've all seen it over the years whereas actually when you have a car that is second, third, fourth fastest, and you want to get first, second fastest. The only way to do that is unity, working together, collaboration, understanding, empathy, compassion for each other. So can we talk about that?
1: Yeah, 100%. I think for sure the dynamic would have been slightly different had we arrived at the first race and had the fastest car on the grid. There's been a huge amount of late nights throughout this season, a lot of uh, tension at times between drivers, drivers, Teams, designers, with regards to are we on the right tracks? Do we need to be doing something different? Do we need to be more drastic? And these were very sort of difficult conversations, but we come away from them growing closer together. And we've got you know, such great leadership within Mercedes that we are now all pushing in one direction. I truly believe this experience we've been through this year will lead to more long-term
0: success. I want to talk to you about when you first shared the team with Lewis, because one of the standout things for me in this conversation is how you've learned all the time from everything, good, bad, successful, unsuccessful. You are a sponge of information from others. What would you say, three-quarters of the way through your first season with Lewis, is the, the thing you've learned the most from someone that has won as many world titles as him?
1: L- Lewis is an incredibly unique character, I think he's incredibly inspiring with all of his sort of activities and projects he has off circuit. When you look at maybe drivers from the past who are just pure racing drivers, I'm gonna wake up living and breathing this sport. And he does things so differently to so many other people yet has still had so much success
0: along the way. and You mean he doesn't fit in the traditional mould of how a Formula 1 driver is?
1: Yeah, I'd say so. And yet he still had so much success and I think I've used this analogy before but when I look at Federer, Nadal and, and Djokovic, you know, these are three greats of the sport. Statistically, you know, they've all basically achieved exactly the same achievements. Yet they have three totally different ways of playing. I'm sure they train differently when you watch them they look different when you see them on court. You know, they, they excel on, on, different, on different courts or, or playing fields or, or whatever. Yet they're three greats. And I think the thing I take away from that, and also from what I take away from Lewis, is that there is no one path to success. I think you need to find your own path, your own journey. You need to have that self belief that even if somebody is is going down a certain path, you need to follow your own course and you need to do what is best for you.
4: I was going to ask you referenced uh, the tennis players, Federer, Nadal and Djokovic. And I think we see lots of parallels there. Formula One's a sport where there's no coaches. Now, I know you recently spent some time with Federer and Andy Murray. What did that teach you? What did you learn from
1: that experience of meeting those guys? I think what I learned is that firstly, they are just great, humble, grounded people. And I think this is something we can never forget. I think um, we all live this crazy lifestyle, especially Formula One. You're going to you know, 23 different countries. The fans, there are incredible. You, you're racing you know, these, these machines around racetracks over 200 miles an hour you're in this bubble of something that isn't real life to a degree. And I think meeting somebody like Roger, who has gone through so much success, so much fame along the way, yet is still just such a down to worth, humble guy gave me so much respect for him. And, you know, hearing, you know, where he lives and what he gets up to on his sort of day to day life, spend a lot of time with, with the family. It sort of brings it back to you that you, you need this in your routine. You need that element of something, something that, you know, something that, you know, takes you away from, from it all. So you can come back and perform at your very, very best. And um, what's yours? I think for me, it's, it's spending time with my, my family and, and friends when I come back from a racetrack to be honest the place where I'd like to be is always at my parents' house in the countryside away from everything no phone signal and just really sort of disconnect and sort of spend quality time with with the people who I care about the most
0: when I was working in Formula One Jensen Button was you know winning world titles and he had a very tight group of mates that went absolutely everywhere with him and they were like his safety net and I know that you work with your sister she's yeah. been part of your kind of backroom setup and you don't make a big deal of it you know we don't see her on the telly or anything but i wonder whether that is a kind of that constant grounding for you at a race weekend that that person that was there right back in the karting days is still yeah, there absolutely. for you it's
1: yeah as you say I work with my sister and she's always there for me 24/7 even though you know most of the time when we talk it's professional we're not talking as a brother and sister having her there is something who i've some, someone who I've had for 24 years of my life and also my manager, Harry. Harry was my manager from when I left Go-Karton in 2013. He was there from, from day one. When I signed for Mercedes, they took over everything. So Harry and I sort of parted away for a couple of years. And two years ago, I said to, to the team at Mercedes, I'd really like to bring Harry back into sort of my group of people around because he's somebody who I trust so much and who I think would be really beneficial for me trying to sort of grow on my, on my journey. So, you know, having my sister, having Harry, having my family, visa people have always been there from day one and you, you know what they're about. Do you have any agreement
4: in place when you're getting a little bit carried away or you have gone too far down the rabbit hole of this fantasy world that you live in? Do they have anything in place to be able to pull you back out?
1: i don't think so i think i've never fortunately found myself in that position and um you know i try and speak with my family as as much as possible and i think that helps to stay grounded
0: and before we do our quick fire questions i just want to know whether you're remembering to really enjoy it as well i remember you know it was lander wasn't it a while ago he was tongue in cheek he said you're not fun anymore when you got into formula 1 it is so serious the stakes are so high we've had a conversation about a crash that cost the team that you wanted to drive for a million and a half dollars like is there still space for enjoyment and for fun, or is it all too high a level for that? <laughs>
1: I, uh, I joked with him that it was quite fun standing on the podium seven times this year. Too. <laughs> 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 so uh, here's one, but anyway. Yeah, it's it's, um, no, of course there's time, time for fun, but yeah. it's all, it's all got to be in the right, the right moments.
0: Right. Um, quick fire questions. What are the three non-negotiables? that you and the people around you have to buy into to, to be part of your world?
1: I think you need to accept that I'm going to be incredibly dedicated yep. to what I do. Can't be a dick. Got to be a nice, nice person. And definitely got to be humble and not not get carried away with with what, what we're doing. What's your biggest weakness and what's your greatest strength? I'd say my biggest weakness is probably, in the heat of the moment, blaming others before looking at myself. I think it's it's very easy to have tunnel vision, and especially in, in the heat of battle. And if something goes wrong, goes against you, I think it's quite easy to jump onto that other person. Biggest strength, I think, probably being dynamic to a situation. Our life is constantly changing, whether it's travel plans, whether it's racing on track, one day it's dry, one day it's wet, climates are changing, conditions are changing, time zones are changing. You can't have a strict routine in the sport that we do. And you've got to you've got to be dynamic. You've got to accept that things will change.
0: What's the hidden cost of the life that you live?
1: There's a lot of sacrifice on Not only you, but probably the people around you, the emotions you go through. Once again, it's not just you. It's everyone is on this journey with you. Yeah, I'd say, yeah, probably the biggest hidden cost is is that emotion. you. I see the effect it has on the people I'm closest to when I succeed. And that's such a great sort of elation and feeling to see that you've had this positive impact on the people you love the most but when something goes against you or you have a bad weekend or you fail i see this on the people around me as well yeah so you're
0: carry, you know probably carrying that weight and just to take on from that the conversation about mental health is a, is an important one for men to have how much does what you do challenge your mental health
1: uh, it absolutely challenges your mental health so much and you've got to be so Resilient to the negativity in this world, whether it's the public perception, whether it's social media, whether it's the the pressures of the team or even the pressures of yourself, but I think yeah, the biggest one, probably for me is um, yeah that public perception and social media side, which is a tough one, and I think that's also relatable to people who aren't in the spotlight because social media. Is a pretty ruthless platform,
0: and what have you learned to deal with it?
1: Just don't read comments. That's a, a pretty straightforward, simple one. But talking to a professional, I think i I have a psych, psychologist who I talk to. um It's not routinely, but I always pick up the phone whenever I feel like I need it, and I always leave that conversation feeling better about myself. There's sort of a weight lifted off my shoulders, and. I think, you know, a number of people have said this before. It's the same way as if you want to get fitter, you go to the gym and you speak to a personal trainer. If there's anything weighing on your mind, you need to talk to a a professional about it and um,
0: seek that help. But also, you know, you go to the gym when your body's not broken. Yeah. And I think people will often only go and seek professional help when the mind is broken. I think there's a power there that you don't go and see someone when you're at your lowest ebb. Absolutely. They're there all the time for you you if you need it.
1: Yeah, absolutely. And I think... I've been very lucky to have the right people around me to almost push me to do this. You know, even though you are, I'm in a good place right now, let's just keep it going. Let's keep the conversations on going. And often I've been in a good place, but as soon as that conversation starts, you know, it sort of uh, all flows out. So yeah, I think that's a really good analogy.
4: If you don't mind us being intrusive and you don't have to answer this, what would you say has been the biggest lesson you've learned from those conversations with the psychologist?
1: The conversation with the psychologist, it's for me. It's difficult to put into words because they are truly experts within their field, and I always, you know, come away from from a conversation with with my psychologist and whether I talk to my girlfriend or my family, and they just, like, oh, how was that? I try and explain some of the things that we spoke about and the piece of advice that he gave me, but I actually struggle to say it. But it's because that's what they're so good at, and I said, I can't. I literally say, I can't really describe what it was that he said or how he said it but I feel better for it and I would really recommend anybody who's got the opportunity to to talk to a professional even if you've never done it before just go out there and just give it a try and and see what you think and I think you'd be really surprised at at what you can take from it
0: Brilliant The power of talking which is what we've done for the last little while and a really fascinating conversation where we haven't really spoken that much about the mechanics of Formula One but you know happy about it It's been great just hearing that people from the outside see a very linear journey from go-karting to Formula One driving and the fact that it isn't that, which you've explained so well, but you've explained the lessons you've taken from all of those difficult moments, which has you where you are. Thank you very much. Thanks, mate. Damien. Check. I worked for a long time in Formula One. That is the best understanding that I've ever heard a driver offer into the journey that is involved in getting to Formula One and the importance of of having those bad times, having those tough times. You know, like I remember watching that crash with Valtteri and for him to then sit here and talk about it in a way where it was almost a, a positive. He learned from it. That is such a powerful place to get your mind to, I think.
4: Yeah, I think there was something really inherently powerful about the messages he was talking about. Pretty much every situation is a learning Experience. if you're open to that, if you're willing to, as you said, step back from the emotion of it, review it in a really detached, calm, rational way and take the lessons from it. We can all learn from pretty much every experience. Then.
0: And in an interesting way, he's he learned how to learn, if that makes sense. So, you know, it, I loved it when he talked about in the early days, it was all about victory, all about success. And then you have to realise that actually when you qualify second on the grid for the first time in a Mercedes and you're disappointed, something's not right. And most drivers would go, well, that's the sport, that's the way it is, that's elite. He he doesn't accept that. Like he's clearly constantly exploring why he feels the way he feels and whether it's healthy for him. Yeah. Um, and I love the fact he learned that coming second on the grid in his first ever race for Mercedes when he stood in for Lewis should have been a good moment and it was a bad one. So he's corrected that. And do you remember he said Right at the beginning, he said, oh, I had a bad bad weekend, laid in my room and got no sleep. Maybe I'd have been better to go out with my mates. So it shows that even now, he's picking up on things, even few, three or four days ago in the most recent race, that actually the way he dealt with it wasn't right. And he's continuing to explore.
4: Yeah. I think there's something really powerful here of getting off what's known as the hedonic treadmill. The idea of we're constantly going from, we're looking for the next thing and the next thing, because we never get off it then. Like he said, if you win one race, you want to win two, you want to win two, you want to win five, then you want to win a championship. And it's almost like you'll never get off that, that treadmill. If that's what you're chasing after happiness, whereas going for those smaller moments, it, like the delayed discounting of having your own expectations of coming half a second is a victory for you rather than thinking that if I don't win the championship, I can't be happy.
0: And we talk often about, you know, people that delay their happiness. They'll be happy when they achieve something. Well, this guy's fighting for a Formula One world title in his career and he's learned that he needs to be happy on the journey, not when he reaches that destination because who knows, he may never reach it. And if, if someone where the stakes are so high, it's like this is, you know, global fame and millions of pounds worth of riches if you become a Formula One World Champion. Well, if he's learned that that's not the everything, I think we can all learn in our own much more humble lives that it's about the daily stuff. It's not about the big moment.
4: Yeah. I think when people often hear, say, football coaches or racing drivers like George say, uh, you know, stick to the process, sometimes it's almost got to the place of of a cliche where you go, well, what does that mean? He's just explained it to you there, the processes, the small steps that eventually add up to the performance targets that then achieve your outcome. But you focus on the small steps to feel that constant sense of motivation, engagement and happiness on the journey.
0: Fascinating. And look, we didn't have time to get into it remarkably after talking for that long. But, you know, when you talk to the team, he gets out there before other people, he acclimatises, you know, his meticulous planning for a race weekend leaves no stone unturned. And I think that if that's how you approach life, Then if it doesn't go to plan, you've allowed yourself the opportunity to actually explore it and find out what's gone on and not be too hard on yourself because you've done everything. And we're not saying like, don't bother and be happy. We're saying, give it everything and be happy if it doesn't go to plan.
4: Yeah. And there was something about that first season when he drove for Williams, where he said, you know, that in that race in Monaco, where he could have cruised around and come in at 19th and been happy. And then he said, actually, what am I going to learn from this? I think there's so many things that if we have that mindset of curiosity, there's always something to teach us. I was reminded of a story. I think it was Gary Player, the golfer, said that when he wanted to teach himself patience, when he was driving to a golf course, he'd drive behind an articulated lorry in the slow lane. So he deliberately forced him to slow his breathing down, to just be patient and focus on the process rather than just getting there as quick as possible. And I think what George has just described of that, learning is there in every opportunity if you have that curiosity and you're willing to explore enjoyed that i loved it
0: okay it's now time to meet a high performance listener one of the things that is really important to us is hearing from you hearing from our high performance community and we get so many people reaching out to us sharing their stories how can we not put those people on the podcast so let's do it we had an amazing email from a guy called stewart um but i'm not going to tell you his story I'm going to let him do it. Hey, Stuart, how are you?
5: Not bad. How are you doing, Jake? You good? Really well, thanks.
0: Right. So please share with the listeners um, what happened to you one day that had a huge impact on your life.
5: Put simply, um, I nearly died, (laughs) Um, um, but more complicated um, in a sort of a more informative way. I was driving home after uh, reporting at the Royal Cornwall Show. It was my first year as a trainee journalist. Um, And another driver lost control of his car and sort of hit me head on. And I was conscious all the way to hospital, um, talking with the paramedics um, and then was unresponsive from about half past two in the morning. Um, And I suffered something um, which is quite rare, but in 80 percent of the cases is usually fatal, called fatty embolic syndrome, which is where you break a long bone and the bone marrow gets into your bloodstream um and yeah was in a induced coma for 10 days had to learn to like walk talk blink eat everything again had like speech and language therapist um but after six six and a half seven weeks i think it was in hospital um got out and then got back to the job um (laughs) within 12 weeks after the crash happening so um so yeah, it was quite a miraculous mm. event and and very fortunate for the recovery that um, I was you know, very, very lucky to benefit from as I wouldn't be here.
0: And look, that's only part of the story because that's you having a lifelong ambition to be a journalist, managing to achieve that by 22, but then at 23 almost dying. But then after that, um, you said in your email that your dog got really poorly. You were uninsured because your wife was about to start maternity leave and it was just simply too expensive. So instead, you opted to save money each month and squirrel it away um, for a just-in-case fund, which obviously was, was your ill dog. So would you mind sharing with the audience at that moment when you're struggling just to keep the wolf from the door what you were doing for work?
5: Yeah, I, I had to basically take on two extra uh, jobs on top of my full-time job. Um, to try having some extra money um, to pay for for the dog's vet costs. So I was um, doing two cleaning jobs. I was cleaning all day on a Saturday and then cleaned a hospital on a Thursday, Friday and Saturday evening.
0: So look, struggling to make ends meet, recovering from your accident, um, yet you say in the message you sent us that as you were cleaning the hospital, you did it listening to the High Performance podcast. Tell me what the podcast did for you.
5: So when um, I was doing the extra, extra work, um, I wanted to try utilizing that time in the most effective way possible by prior myself a learning and, um, you know, stumbled across the podcast and it, it just completely just changed everything about, you know, my life and uh, my outlook. Um, I'm quite a positive person anyway, but it was getting those golden friends that you find in every episode where you extrapolate that information and apply it to yourself. Yeah,
0: thank you more than anything. Well, look, thank you for coming on here because I think it's one thing Damien and I telling people that life is about how you react to the things that happen, not the things that happen, right? And sometimes it's easy to say it. It's much more impactful to hear someone talk who has been through that journey and for you to sit here and tell us about the accident, tell us about the extra jobs you had to take to support your wife and your child and your dog and, and then for it finally to lead to an amazing opportunity and for us to help you. Get that job is the most incredible thing for us. And, you know, I will still say it again. This is all your work, not ours. But it's an absolute pleasure for you to come on here, share it with us and share it with the audience. Thank you so much, man.
5: That's all right. Thank you again.
0: Oh, what a cool episode. And I think it's one thing to hear it. It's something totally different to watch it. And you can see this conversation with George on our YouTube page. Just type High Performance Podcast into YouTube and you can watch the whole conversation. There's some extended bits on there as well. Some really cool stuff. Thank you so much for listening. Thank you so much for being part of this High Performance journey. You know what? I would love you to just get in touch. I would love you to let me know what you thought of this conversation with George. And I'd love you to do one other thing. Let me just be totally frank here, okay? We are doing our best to change people's mindsets, change their perception of the world, change their outlook change their understanding of others by having these conversations on high performance. But, you know, we're not on a terrestrial TV channel. We don't spend millions of pounds on advertising. Not everyone knows about this podcast. So if you could do me one thing or one thing only, it's just to share this podcast on your WhatsApp, on your Instagram, on your Facebook, with your mates, just Call someone and say, listen, there's a cool podcast you should listen to. I can't tell you the difference it makes for us. The more we can grow this channel, the more incredible names we can attract. And once we get those names, we bring you conversations that will be a game changer for you. So please, please share this podcast. Thanks to the whole team for their hard work on this episode. But for you at home listening to this, remember there is no secret. It's all there for you. So be like George, man. Believe in big things. Chase world-class basics. Work hard. Don't get high on your own supply. Remain humble, curious and empathetic. And we'll see you soon. Bye for now.
2: Go to quince.com slash style for free shipping and 365-day returns. Without the ones like you who work tirelessly to keep things running, everything would suddenly stop. Hospitals, factories, schools, and power plants, they all depend on you. No matter the weather, emergency, or time of day, you're the ones who get it done. At Granger, we're here for you with professional-grade industrial supplies. Count on real-time product availability and fast delivery.